You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I would always notice that I would have these clients who would walk in and they would tell me about like what they were doing and what was happening. And there would always be this moment where it's like, God, I always feel like I used to have a lot more money when I made $100,000 a year less. <laughs> it's a weird thing. But, you know, take a zero off and it's pretty much the same in almost every household. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do right now to secure my future? Well, it's time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me on Her Money. So it has been a little over three years since the pandemic changed practically everything about our lives. And in many ways, it feels like those changes just keep on coming. The economy, it's giving us so many mixed signals right now that it seems impossible to predict what might happen next. For many of us, this uncertainty is serving as a wake-up call to reflect on what we really want to do with our lives and our money, plans we put in place for our careers and retirement that were years, maybe even decades in the making, have been modified. Some of them have been changed completely. During the pandemic, many of us quit our jobs for better paying opportunities or changed careers or retired or started businesses, or maybe you didn't do any of those things, but you are thinking about doing one of them right now. Our guest for today, Jill Schlesinger, who is a longtime friend of this show, noticed that more and more people were making these changes or hoping to make these changes. She's called the whole thing a great money reset. And she wanted to create a roadmap for people to follow so that they could do that resetting without jeopardizing their financial futures. The new book is called The Great Money Reset, Change Your Work, Change Your Wealth, Change Your Life. And it's all about strategies for saving, spending, and investing so that we can take those big leaps of faith with confidence and with as little financial stress as possible. Jill, as you know, is also a business analyst for CBS News. She's the host of the podcast and radio show, Jill on Money, and the author of another great book called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. She's also a great friend of mine. Jill, good to see you. Well, thanks for having me. This is so exciting. This is fun. Always, always good to have you back. Your book is about the big changes that we all have to navigate at certain points in our lives. And you start, as I probably would have, with the pandemic, which just had this huge impact on the way that we were forced to look at our lives as a whole and our financial lives. What made you do this right now? I mean, what was it that just just called your attention to this as a problem that needed solving? Well, it just seemed like amid the pandemic, after the first, say, three, four months went by, and most of us were sort of hoping that it would be more short-lived, but then we were settling into a longer-term issue. And I think that with this collective 
being forced to really reevaluate everything from, you know, what's most important to me? Where is my family? How am I getting everyone safe? Reckoning with illness and loss that a lot of people were happy that they were home and kind of thinking that maybe this was a moment to really think about is their life, as you, they were living it, the, the life they really wished to be living. And I don't think sometimes you can't really ask that question unless you have some sort of seismic event on a personal level. I think we've been through this. If you've had illness or death in your own life, if you've had a birth, if there is a divorce, if there's a marriage, like there are the happy kinds of spurring of conversations and the sad ones. And I think the big difference of the pandemic is that they were, it was just overwhelmingly obvious to millions of Americans that there was something off in their priorities and the choices they had made. And they wanted a way to figure out how to at least evaluate where they were and open up opportunities for them in the future. And I think what I realized was having phone calls with people on, you know, we went to a daily podcast in March of 2020 and, and listening to people and getting emails and answering calls every single day for seven days a week, we had a refrain that was really coming in loud and clear. And the, my response to that was, I, as you said, I, I needed to build a framework to help them make these decisions. And so listen, I'm trained as a first an options trader and then a financial planner. And my fallback is to always start with the numbers and I'll leave a lot of the emotions to people who are navigating it. But I really wanted to make sure we had the guardrails up first around the finances. And that was the germination of the book, which is what are the questions we need to be asking ourselves? What's the information we need to have to make better decisions? And how can we minimize the risk of making a big decision going forward and try to really understand what the ramifications are and what you can do to take control of the situation. I like that framing in terms of minimizing the risk because look, I'm willing to take risks. I'm willing to jump, but I want to know what the worst case scenario is. And then I want to try to prevent it from happening before I actually attach the bungee cord or whatever it is I'm doing, which I would never do, by the way, never, <laughs> ever in my life. So let's just say that you've had it with your career or your financial situation or you're burned out or you're ready to retire or you do want to start a business. Let's talk it through step by step. What's the first thing to do to minimize the downside? I think that the most important place to start is actually in many ways the hardest thing for a lot of people, but it really is the easiest thing. And that is taking stock of where you are. You know, obviously, if you are using a rideshare service, you say, here's where I want to go. And you have to put in where you are to be picked up. And this part of the process, I actually think is daunting for a lot of people. But I think of it in a series of five steps. I call it the fabulous five because I think it's just really important. And by the way, you don't have to be resetting your entire life to run through this process. It's also a way to take control of what is going on in your financial life and what is going on in your life. And sometimes when you get the numbers part right, or at least address it, then it's a lot easier to go into the emotional part. It really is. So step one is you want to calculate your resources. And that means you list out the stuff you own or your assets, and you take into account 
the money that you're earning right now. And I think this is a one part of the process that anyone who owns a small business can really understand. And sometimes employees don't, don't forget to put in your benefits and those benefits cost your employer quite a bit of money. You usually don't think of it that way, but when you list out things like my health insurance and what I have to pay for it, the life insurance, extra coverage I can buy my disability insurance, my retirement plan and the match that I get my flexible spending, my health savings account. All those things are great benefits. Add those into your resources. And when you're listing your other assets, you know, obviously you have like your emergency reserve fund, your banking, your checking, your savings, your CDs, your I bonds, you have that listed. You also have retirement accounts and also include your house, which is an asset. And almost I'd like people to kind of draw two different lines around their assets. So one is the money, you know, you can get to without any tax hit. And then the money that you could get to if you're over 59 and a half, but you have to have a tax hit to get there. And then the absolute illiquid asset, which would be a house, right? Or an antique car or piece of artwork. So just know that you don't have to do anything with it. It's your list. The second step, you calculate your debt, any money you owe. It can be credit card debt, car loans, education loans, does not matter. It's also your mortgage. Step three is considering your housing. And, you know, look, I think it's important that people look at their house and they don't get so romantic about it. You know, I own two homes. It's so stupid because I hate owning. I really love <laughs> renting. It really I really is. like owning. We could debate this all day long. Oh my God. You take it. Take mine. I'll give you an example. Okay. You can own a home and you say, okay, I've got a really cheap mortgage. I refied during 2021. I have a 3% 30-year fixed rate mortgage. It's great. That's fine. So yes, that is true. The cost of carrying that house is low, but what about the cost of maintaining the house? What about all the equity that's in that house that could be doing other things that might allow you to do different things? Maybe is it possible that when you were thinking about what happened over the last three or four years, you might have realized that where you thought it was going to be your forever home really isn't, that maybe you really need to be closer to your relatives. So things like that, just thinking about your housing situation. The fourth step is to consider your spending habits. And I promise you, you don't have to make a budget. I don't really like budgets. I barely like cash flow statements. But what I do like is understanding the amount of money you need to live your life. And I'm not telling you that if you stop drinking a latte, you'll become a millionaire because mathematically that just doesn't work. But I am telling you that if you're accountable to the way you're spending money, you can make different decisions going forward. But if you don't know what the number is, you really cannot project forward. And then finally, I think this is really important. And that is step five is to consider any obligations you might have to other people. Did you tell your kids you were going to pay for college? Did you tell your siblings you were going to help pay for mom and dad's aging parent expenses? Are there are there issues that you think are important that, that are sort of the ob obligatory thing that maybe you said 15 years ago, but doesn't actually hold true today? Those are the five places to start. And now then once you have all those questions answered, you can start to build out some different scenarios like whatever you want to do next. What's the best case? What's the worst case? What's the middle case? And you start looking at the amount of money and the assets you have and the obligations you've made. And it helps you start to give yourself a framework for how to make a move. Um, and maybe you don't have to blow anything up and maybe you don't have to do anything. Maybe all you need to do is go through this process and you'll sit still and feel better about sitting still.
my ex-husband, who is still a good friend of mine, likes to say assets are fungible. And he said that for many years. And in the beginning, I don't think I really understood what he meant. But what he meant, what he means, is exactly what you're saying. Once you know where your dominoes are, then you can maneuver your dominoes in order to rearrange your life if that's something that you want to do. So back to housing, this book is great because it's built around stories. And so if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't want to read a book of numbers. This is not a book of numbers. This is a book of people and stories. And you'll see yourself in a lot of these stories. And there was a couple in the book that realized that their house was worth a lot more money than they ever thought it was going to be worth. And they shook that part up and changed their life. Can you talk about that? So this is one of my favorite stories in the book, mostly because you and I share a friend who is a doctor. And I've always like teased all the doctors in my life about like, I know what you really say once we go out, like we're under, you know, we're under anesthesia. (laughs) Now I've learned that it's not really as interesting as I thought, but it is a lot about real estate. So there's a woman named Pam who lives in the Pittsburgh area. She's married to a guy named Tom. He's a physical therapist. She's an operating room nurse. And she was in surgery. And this is probably pretty deep into the pandemic, like late 20, 21, early 21. And doctor's like, oh my God, the real estate market's on fire. And she doesn't know exactly what he's talking about and not paying attention to it. And he said, yeah, this area is going crazy. Don't you know that? Call your real estate agent friends and see what's going on. And so anyway, the, the she does this and thinks it's all like, sort of a silly thing. And I just want to give you some context for who these people are. These are people in their 50s. They're people who've worked really, really hard, made a bunch of money, but somehow can't quite get the financial freedom that they really seek. And part of that has to do with the amount of money they had to pay for their kids' college education or the student loans that they're paying off parent loans, their kids' loans. And I think that Pam and Tom found themselves in that situation where they were not only carrying parent loans, but they were also had some credit card debt. They had a pretty big mortgage because they had to refinance to help their kid pay his loans down. So there was just a lot of debt. And to make those payments and to still put money into retirement, you know, Pam had to work a ton of overtime. And so you imagine that working in COVID and working overtime and feeling fried and just kind of staring down the barrel of like, I don't know if I can do this for this much longer. Like I'm in my fifties. I thought I could do this till I'm 65, but maybe I can't. And all of a sudden, after getting the appraisal of the house from her realtor friend, she realizes the equity in her home actually could allow her to breathe. And by selling, what they could do is pay off all the outstanding debt. She wouldn't have to work as much in terms of her overtime They probably had more longevity in their careers because those hours were reduced. But there was a big caveat, especially for Gene Chatsky, and that is that they were going to rent. They weren't going to put that money into another home. They were never going to get another mortgage, at least at that time. They needed some breathing room. And, you know, some people might freak out about that. I get it. I get it. It's a scary thing, especially if you've been owning some sort of real estate for your life. But- Imagine the freedom of feeling like unburdened by all that debt and 
freedom in actually being a renter and not having to maintain a property, freedom of just knowing, well, you know, even if the rent goes up, if something goes wrong, it's not on me. And I still have some money in the bank and I can keep putting money into retirement. And so that's a story that tells you it's like a great adventure in some respects, but it's also about how can I actually breathe? Because living in this way, I don't think that Pam and Tom would have survived the way that they were going. I just don't. Well, what was also amazing about this story to me was, and by the way, I think, and I'll just get on the couch for everybody for a second. I actually think that my desire to own rather than rent has everything to do with the fact that I was the one to move after I got divorced, right? Mm -hmm. And I associate owning with stability for whatever it's worth. But what I loved about this story was that it allowed them to put more money into retirement, but also because they're not so stressed, they could keep working a little bit longer. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that our notion of what retirement is, is so much like in flux right now. And I think that you could look at somebody who is a nurse, a teacher, like some of these frontline people who really did get burnt out. And I think they deserve every ability to like chill out a little bit. It's been tough. But what we also know is how long we're all living. And if you're 58 years old and you're fried, but you run all your numbers and you really don't feel like you can get out from underneath all the obligations you have and the things you want to do, there is an ability to do something different. There could be an off-ramp. There could be an ability to say, well, you know, I've worked full-time all these years. Maybe I need to work 10 years doing something a little bit less stressful. Maybe I could work a little bit less in terms of the amount of time every single day. Maybe if I'm with somebody or partnered with someone who has great health insurance, I can go on that person's health insurance and I can start to explore something different. But going back to the numbers, you can't even have that conversation unless you know what the numbers are. Right. And in particular, the spending. And I want to talk about that, but we're going to take a quick break before we do, because retirement, like we're talking about, is a big deal. And since women live longer, we have to make our savings last longer, which means we have to plan smarter. Visit EdelmanFinancialEngines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You can get a fresh look at your finances and work with some real experts to create a plan to help you build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth so that you can achieve the retirement that you've been dreaming about. It is your money. Make it count. Get started at planefe.com slash hermoney and speak with an advisor today. I'm talking with Jill Schlesinger, business analyst for CBS News, author of the new book, The Great Money Reset. You mentioned spending in your list of five things that you got to get a grip on your spending or you have to know where your money is going. And you also said it's not about the latte. And I could not agree more. It's very personal. I'm one of the things that we have learned and in doing our finance fix coaching program, we go through a process where we ask people to quote unquote, get dirty with their data. Right? <laughs> I we, love that. We want them to roll around with the data, really look at their numbers, see where their money is going. And 
then they have the power to change where the money is going. But as you were saying, until you know, you can't change anything. So where do you see opportunity to make changes that are more meaningful than coffee? Well, I mean, look, I'm not saying that, you know, spending 10 bucks a day on coffee is not, you know, a great thing to do. However, I do think that more meaningful conversations should be coming around what I like to call lifestyle creep. So I used to be an advisor like the folks at Edelman. And, you know, I would always notice that I would have these clients who would walk in and they would tell me about like what they were doing and what was happening. And there would always be this moment where it's like, God, I always feel like I used to have a lot more money when I made $100,000 a year less. <laughs> it's a weird thing. But, you know, take a zero off and it's pretty much the same in almost every household. So whenever, you know, I'm not a judgmental person about how much or how little you have, but I like round numbers, so it's easier. But, you know, when you think about that, if you say like, we're a couple, we used to make $100,000 a year, we now make $200,000 a year. Why do we feel kind of like we're not getting ahead. Well, you know, we probably had a couple of kids. We probably made some choices around what happened with those kids. We may have allowed our desire to help our children so much cloud a little bit of our view of our spending. And I think for a lot of people, the big spend comes around kids and it can also come around things like, you know, stupid things like I want to join this country club. I want to join this club. I want to do that thing. I want to take a nice vacation. All of these things are, you're entitled to do this. I don't really care how people spend their money, Jean. I don't, I don't want anyone looking into the way I spend my money, but I'll be honest with you. When you really look at it, you start to say to yourself, huh, do I really need that? And there's this weird thing that happened over the last three years. You actually had the ability to know the difference between what you actually needed and what you wanted because that pandemic threw that right into our faces. And you know what? Maybe you didn't want to join the gym. Maybe you did want to work out at home. Maybe you were going to walk more. Maybe taking three huge vacations a year. I mean, it's great, but maybe you were stretching that a little bit. Maybe you were making little changes in your consumption that start to add up to a lot. And I use myself, I make fun of myself in this book, believe me, because I'm happy to do that. You know, I was a third career person when I got into the media and like, I used to try to dress really like, oh, I, I've arrived and this is like important and this and the other thing. And I'd buy expensive shoes for two minutes on the screen. It's so stupid and nobody really cares what I'm wearing and I ain't that important. And, you know, I have to be honest with you, like I literally have very much downgraded my spending on things like that just because I had this ability to be like, I have a lot of stuff in my closet. I'm okay. No one really is looking how many times I wear this yellow turtleneck and although maybe it will now. <laughs> I like it. And, and I tend to revert to black turtlenecks whenever I'm feeling called on a particular day. And nobody ever notices. In this lesson, I learned from Jamie Gangell, who for the entire time that I worked with her on the Today Show, wore a black suit with a white t-shirt and beautiful pearls, right? Always. Uniform. Uniform dressing costs a lot less than any other kind of dressing. For people who think, all right, I'm going to try to sustainably cut my spending, but I'm also going to hate it. Do you have suggestions for how not to feel deprived? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm not saying you should live like we lived in April of 2020 when the uh, savings rate went to 34% in that month. Okay. So I'm not suggesting that. 
I have some questions that I ask in my chapter about spending or consumption. And I think this is when I start to really go a little bit away from the numbers and a little bit more towards you. And the questions are very clear. The first one, and we've already talked about, it's like, what do I really need and what do I only think I need, right? The next question is really, it's very psychological and a lot of our spending is psychological. Do you find yourself feeling guilty or insecure or anxious about a purchase that you make? Because if that's the case, I have a feeling that something is going on here, that maybe if you're feeling guilty or you're feeling like you don't look a certain way, that like you probably need to be spending your money not so much on clothes, but on a shrink because you don't really need to be doing what all of your other friends are doing. So I think that if you actually get to the core of some of this and with the younger kids, it might be the fear of missing out. And, it, you know, I deal with this with my niece and my nephew. And it's very funny because he is a very high paid guy. He's a programmer, he's a software engineer. She is a New York City school teacher. And a lot of her friends, when they go out, she'll say to her husband, like, don't pick up the check for people. That's infantilizing. That's disgusting. Either we're going to go out like how teachers go out or we'll go out differently, but we're not doing this. And like, it's almost like you actually have to understand the emotions behind this. And it's much too easy to let other people influence your spending, no matter what your age is. It's really important. And the other question I would say that you would ask around your consumption is, do you find yourself making impulsive purchases? And when does that happen? Why is that happening? My mother and father had the funniest fight in front of me that will always ring true to this day. My mother's father, my grandfather was in the hospital and you will know where this is. So he was at Mount Sinai Hospital, Gene in New York City, and he was there for four months. And my mother used to walk up and down Madison Avenue in the middle of the day just because she needed a breather. And, you know, when you're Susan Schlesinger and you walk up and down Madison Avenue every day, there will be a purchase made. And I remember my father saying, she was saying, but like, I'm so stressed out. Like I need to take a walk. And my father's like, fine, take a walk, window shop, do not buy every single time you're out through the walking. And, but it was kind of like instructive in some ways, like, why am I actually spending this money? Cause I'm so upset about my father and my father's dying, but like, Buying this thing is not going to make that go away. So what do I need? I need to take a break. And, and it was funny because they actually started walking in Central Park instead. And it was actually better for her. So one of the things I want people to understand is that like some of your consumption is by habit. Some of it is unexamined. And the way to not feel like I feel cheated is to also understand that what you're doing is you're taking control and you get to choose if you want to splurge and it's okay for you and your family to splurge on something. Fine. A lot of people splurge post pandemic, but it may be that like now this year, in 2023, the splurge doesn't really cut it. There are other things that are happening. And I think it's worth our while to just spend a minute not judging our spending, not judging our spouse's spending, but getting real and saying, what is this doing? How is this serving me? Yeah, absolutely. One last train of thought I want to explore in the book before you leave us. And, you know, the show is for women. We are advocates for women. And one of the financial skills that you advocate in the book is for knowing how to bully your boss, which <laughs> as a boss sounds kind of scary and intimidating, but I know it's an acronym. So can you just explain it and why it's so important? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I have so many friends who are the best advocates for the people who work for and with them. It's amazing to me. It really is. Like, 
I can talk to people and they will like go to the mat to get their person a raise, a promotion and kind of work that food chain. But when it comes to doing it for ourselves, women tend to not be that great. I think we're getting better. I think the younger generation, thank goodness, is better. But what I can say is that this is a skill and it's not really bully your boss, but I want you to know that this is a skill to ask for a raise is a skill. And as a skill, what I would like you to do is to know that you can get better at it and you can practice it and it can actually work. So this is what I want you to understand. You don't just go in someday and be like, I want a raise. What you really want to do is you are going to do five different things, which is the B in bully is button up your ask, which means, look, you have got to know what you're asking for. You got to know what you want. You know, do you want salary? Do you want time? Do you, you know, like, do you want to have a hybrid workplace? Like all those things are important, but you have got to know what you're asking for. Okay. Number one, the you, and I think this is very important is understand the full picture. I've been a boss before. And what I understand as the boss is that when someone comes marching into my office and the business isn't doing well, the industry isn't doing well, the economy isn't doing well, even if that person is extraordinary, asking for a raise in that moment, not great. So you really have to be clear, like, what are you asking for? And is it reasonable given what's going on in your company, in your industry? You know, find out, do a little bit of work ahead of time. And also I would be very careful to understand. I know this people say to me, like, why should I care? But I would understand what's the situation your boss is in. Is your boss in a precarious position, him or herself? Is it something where this person is under so much pressure? One more thing is going to just blow the whole office out of the place for this person. You know, like, so I just think it's important to understand the landscape. The L, B-U-L, lose the ego. Don't be a jerk here. Even if you have another offer in hand, the more gracious you can be, the better it's going to go. I can promise you that. I've done bad things and good things with bosses. I promise you, be gracious. It's perfect. Practice this conversation. Now, by the way, if you're listening to this and you've got a young kid who is worried about asking, say, let me practice with you or let me have you practice with Auntie Jean or Auntie Jill and let people really practice the feeling of walking in, looking into your boss's eye, articulating what you want and leaving space for the answer. And then the final step is don't yuck it up, the why in bully, because I promised my girlfriend I would not curse in this book. And so don't yuck it up is don't <laughs> do that. I have to say that I've marveled at people who do really dopey things, even if they're on their way out. Life is short. Don't get dragged down with that. And also, by the way, you don't know where you're going to be in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. You don't know how this person may or may not enter into your life. It's a very hard thing to like get your emotions under control, especially if you feel like you've been mistreated. But in the best sense, I can tell you that it is so much better for you philosophically and for your career to kind of hold it in and not to let your emotions get the better of you, even if you don't get what you want. A hundred percent. I can't tell you how many times I have ended up working with that person in another job, in five years, in 10 years. Don't burn the bridges. You're going to need them. The world is a lot smaller than you think. Jill Schlesinger, where can we get the book? Where can we find out more about you? 
So all of my content lives on my website, jillonmoney.com. That's also my social handle. And you can buy the book wherever you like to buy books or listen to books. And we have links at my website and everything's there. So as always, again, I just want to say that you are just so gracious and lovely. And I so value the time that we have been spending together. I feel like we spend a lot of time together this week. And I'm very grateful for that. So thank you, Jean. And thank you to your lovely audience. Well, thank you for being here. It is always, always a pleasure. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. It helps its members make smarter financial decisions by offering them the products and services and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. If it sounds like I'm a fan, that's because I am. You can find out if you're eligible by visiting bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle is joining me for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So I have to know, where do you stand on the topic of retail therapy? Well, do I do it? Yes, I do it. But then sometimes I feel, sometimes I feel bad about it. I mean, you know how I budget right? I have a non-budget budget. I budget backwards. So I get all my goals out of the way first. I get all the stuff I'm saving for out of the way first, which gives me a decent amount of freedom with whatever is left. And look, I like to shop. I find it incredibly fun. I like to just go and look. I particularly like to look at sales. I mean, and I have to, I know myself, I have to be really careful when something is on sale because I will bring it home and that is something that I will regret. I have to sort of force myself to go through the process of thinking, if this was full price, would I actually buy it? But like last week, I scored this skirt that I have been eyeing since it came out at the beginning of the season at 60% off. And I was like, woohoo, you know, somebody had returned it, which is the only reason that it was still there. So why do you ask? I don't know. Just hearing Jill talk about it, it made me wonder, you know, because I always feel like if you've had a really terrible day and you have it in the budget, that retail therapy is really not the worst thing in the world. You know, they say money can't buy happiness, but it can make a lot of things easier. And I feel like this is one example of that, right? If I'm having a terrible day, there have been many times when the mall has made me better. Yeah. And I think a new lipstick absolutely can bring a decent amount of happiness or a perfume that you just love smelling or a candle. And when Jill was talking about her mom, I was thinking about my mom because when my father died and my mother will talk about this, my mom spent a lot of money and she just spent a lot of money because she was so sad. And sometimes it can fill up a hole. It doesn't fill it up for very long, but it can sometimes make that bad day, bad week, bad month, bad year seem a little bit better. And I agree with you. Look, I don't want to suggest that anybody sabotage their life by spending money they don't have on things they really can't afford. But if you're looking at vices, I think there are others that can be more dangerous and more damaging. Yes. And I think maybe that's what I was getting at. So what do you think Jill's thoughts are on retail therapy? I think for her, she has 
decided that she's not going to be as big a consumer as she once was. That's sort of what I heard in her talking about at least her clothing consumption. But the other thing I heard, and this is something that I believe and I know you believe, is I'm not judging. You know, this is your money. And the whole point of what I do and what you do and what she does is to give you a set of tools so that you can use your money in the way that makes you most happy, no judgment, right? And if that is buying something, great. If it is giving it away, great. If it's saving it or investing it, great. I'm not going to judge it. I just want you to know how to accomplish whatever it is you want to accomplish. Right. Right. That's what it's all about is having something that works for you and being able to function happily within the bounds of whatever that is. Personal finance is personal, right? Yes. Let's take some questions. Our first question today comes to us from a member of our Private Harmony Facebook group. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm seeking advice to help an elderly family member. She's asked me to serve as executor. She needs to update her will and create other legal documents now. She's also mentioned wanting me to have power of attorney. She's been living on a fixed income, and her home is her only asset. The value is at or just under $100,000, and there's likely some debt. We support her with extra expenses like home repairs or medical expenses. I think she's trying to ensure my spouse and I get a larger share due to the fact that our financial support over time is greater than that of her children. I think that's part of why she asked me to be the executor. But is there a way to make it more specific? Essentially, a way for her to write that we will recoup X amount when her home is eventually sold, or somehow create an interest-free loan each time we give her funds where it is secured against the home. That way, she can have any remaining assets divided evenly amongst her kids after we're paid back. We'll probably be doing an $8,000 repair this year for her home on top of the help we've given already. She wants my help getting documents, so I'd like to give her some choices now on how to proceed. Are online legal documents an option, or does she really need to have a lawyer? Thank you so much. Thanks for the question. I'm actually going to take the second part of it first, where you ask if you need a lawyer or if you can do this with Will Software. Please don't do this with Will Software. This is a a fairly complicated scenario that I don't think is going to take a huge amount of an attorney's time, but because of the fact that you are not her child, and it sounds like there are other children who could potentially contest a will if they find that somebody else, not them, is getting the lion's share of what turns out to be her estate. I want to make sure that this is completely buttoned up. It should be a lawyer that she hires and she talks to and she lays out exactly what she is trying to make happen. And then I would have her ask the question of whether or not having you as executor puts any of this in jeopardy. I don't want it to seem, and by the way, I'm not a lawyer, no legal training whatsoever, but I do not want it to seem to her other children as if you have influenced this situation and What I want to be sure of is that your being the executor does not give that impression whether or not it's true. So 
yes, you need a lawyer. Yes, there are ways to make sure that this can happen for money that you are laying out. I'm not sure exactly how a lawyer will write this document in order to make it happen, but I do know that it's possible. So find a good estate planning attorney and start there. Yeah, that's great advice, Jean. Is there a scenario wherein our letter writer advocates for the children to be brought into the loop ahead of time, or does that open another can of worms? I'm in the circumstance where this older relative has a really solid relationship with her children, and our letter writer also has a good relationship with these children. Yeah, I would advocate for full transparency. I doubt that's true in this case. I just worry that there is a deeper-seated reason that we are not aware of why she's being asked to be the executor and the kids are not. And so, again, I want the lawyer's advice about this. Do you tell the kids now? You tell the kids now, you give the kids a chance to lobby mom. And then perhaps our letter writer has laid out money that she's never going to see again. Right. Right. Yeah. Good point. Be interested to see what the attorney says on this. A hundred percent. Thank you, Jean. Sure. Our next question comes to us from Sonali. She writes, hi, Jean. I have an independent contractor question. A former colleague of mine has asked me if I would be interested in some contract work with his consulting company. It seems legit in that I know him, but I don't know if I feel comfortable giving him a W-9 because my social security number would be on there. What questions should I ask? He said that I would need to complete a W-9 and that he would give me a 1099 for taxes. Does this sound standard to you? I don't want to turn down an opportunity, but I also want to stay safe. Thank you. I love that you are so conscious of protecting yourself against identity theft and that you've heard the advice that's so often given about the need to protect your social security number, but you need to give this guy a W-9 if you want to get paid. That's pretty much the bottom line. It's completely standard. And the reason for this is when this company issues a 1099 for taxes, they are also giving matching information to the IRS that says we paid Sonali for this work, this amount of money, and the IRS does a match. They make sure that the amount that the company says they paid you is the amount that you then said you got paid. And that's how we get through tax season without getting an audit. I wouldn't worry about this at all. I would make sure if you are worried about identity theft that your credit is frozen. If you go to hermoney.com, we've got a very straightforward article about how to freeze your credit and the fact that if you ever want to apply for credit and your credit is frozen, all you do is lift the freeze, very simple, and then you put it back on about a week later. Actually, it goes back on automatically about a week later and you can get through the credit application process in very short order, but at least you have the confidence of knowing that nobody is going to be able to apply for credit in your name that is not you. 
So I would go ahead and do that, Sonali. And you can also, if you feel like it, go through the process of making sure that you've got a PIN set up with the IRS. You can do that at irs.gov. That is just another layer of protection against somebody applying for your tax refund that is not you. Amazing advice, Jean. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. I love these questions. Please keep sending them in. If you want somebody to take a closer look at your finances and help you build a plan for your financial future, you should know about Her Money's coaching program. It's called Finance Fix. I was talking about it with Jill earlier. It's an eight-week money makeover that will help you save more, spend less, get dirty with your data, as I said, and build good money habits that'll last you a lifetime. You will work with one of our trained finance coaches to go through your financial situation and work with a small group of women who are also looking to strengthen their money skills. I was on with one of these classes last night, and I am very happy to see that people are getting so much out of it. You can learn more or sign up at financefix.com, and we spell fix, F-I-X-X, with two X's. And in today's Thrive, have you ever heard the term super saver? They are a small but mighty group of people who save 15% or more of their salary for retirement or contribute 90% or more of the IRS maximum to their retirement accounts. While socking away 20 grand or more every year for retirement is not a realistic goal for everyone. Super savers have some pretty great strategies for bumping up their savings rates that we can all learn from. At hermoney.com, we've unpacked their most effective habits so that you can boost your own savings prowess. Number one, if your employer offers a match for 401k contributions, make sure you take it. It is free money. You'll gain the benefit of lowering your taxable income for the year in the process. And if you're not at the point where you can defer enough of your paycheck to capture the entire match, think about working your way up. Some 401k plans have something called auto escalation, which means the plan will automatically increase your contribution at regular intervals so that you don't have to think about it. And we recommend aiming to increase your contribution by at least one percentage point annually. If you are meeting the match and you have savings left over, don't leave those dollars in a traditional savings account. Park them in a high-yield savings account or a Roth IRA. Both of those options will go further to help protect your money from inflation. Next, sit down and take a closer look at your retirement plans. It's easier to set a savings goal and stick to it when you have a clear idea of how much money you'll need in your later years. The standard rule of thumb is to try to save 25 times your expected annual expenses in retirement so that your money will last a good 25 to 30 years. Just keep in mind, people are living longer. Women are living longer than men. So you might have to support yourself well into your 90s. It might make sense to save even more than you think you need. Thank you all for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jill for giving us the power and financial knowledge to do our own great money reset and change our lives for the better. 
If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. We'll be right back.